Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again by Mark Twain. Letter 1. Note. No experience is set down in the following letters which had to be invented. Fancy is not needed to give variety to the history of a Chinaman's sojourn in America. Plain fact is amply sufficient. Letter 1. Shanghai, 18. Blank. Dear Ching Fu, it is all settled, and I am to leave my oppressed and overburdened native land and cross the sea to that noble realm where all are free and all equal, and none reviled or abused, America. America, whose precious privilege it is to call herself the land of the free and the home of the brave. We and all that are about us here look over the waves longingly, contrasting the privations of this our birthplace with the opulent comfort of that happy refuge. We know how America has welcomed the Germans and the Frenchmen and the stricken and sorrowing Irish, and we know how she has given them bread and work and liberty, and how grateful they are. And we know that America stands ready to welcome all other oppressed peoples and offer her abundance to all that come without asking what their nationality is or their creed or color. And, without being told it, we know that the foreign sufferers she has rescued from oppression and starvation are the most eager of her children to welcome us, because, having suffered themselves, they know what suffering is, and having been generously succored, they long to be generous to other unfortunates, and thus show that magnanimity is not wasted upon them. Ah Sung He. Letter 2. At Sea. 18. Blank. Dear Ching Fu, we are away at sea now, on our way to the beautiful land of the free and home of the brave. We shall soon be where all men are alike, and where sorrow is not known. The good American who hired me to go to his country is to pay me twelve dollars a month, which is immense wages, you know, twenty times as much as one gets in China. My passage in the ship is a very large sum, indeed it is a fortune, and this I must pay myself eventually, but I am allowed ample time to make it good to my employer in, he advancing it now. For a mere form I have turned over my wife, my boy, and my two daughters to my employer's partner for security for the payment of the ship fare, but my employer says they are in no danger of being sold, for he knows I will be faithful to him, and that is the main security." I thought I would have twelve dollars to begin life with in America, but the American consul took two of them for making a certificate that I was shipped on the steamer. He has no right to do more than charge the ship two dollars for one certificate for the ship, with the number of her Chinese passengers set down in it, but he chooses to force a certificate upon each and every Chinaman, and put the two dollars in his pocket. As thirteen hundred of my countrymen are in this vessel— the consul received $2,600 for certificates. My employer tells me that the government at Washington know of this fraud, and are so bitterly opposed to the existence of such a wrong that they tried hard to have the extor— uh, the, the fee, I mean, legalized by the last Congress. Pacific and Mediterranean Steamship Bills. Ed. Mem. But as the bill did not pass, the consul will have to take the fee dishonestly until next Congress makes it legitimate. It is a great and good and noble country, and hates all forms of vice and chicanery. We are in that part of the vessel always reserved for my countrymen. It is called the steerage. 
It is kept for us, my employer says, because it is not subject to changes of temperature and dangerous drafts of air. It is only another instance of the loving unselfishness of the Americans for all unfortunate foreigners. The steerage is a little crowded, and rather warm and close, but no doubt it is best for us that it should be so. Yesterday our people got to quarreling among themselves, and the captain turned a volume of hot steam upon a mass of them, and scalded eighty or ninety of them more or less severely. Flakes and ribbons of skin came off some of them. There was wild shrieking and struggling, while the vapor enveloped the great throng, and so some who were not scalded got trampled upon and hurt. We do not complain, for my employer says this is the usual way of quieting disturbances on board the ship and that it is done in the cabins among the Americans every day or two. Congratulate me, Ching Fu. In ten days more I shall step upon the shore of America and be received by her great-hearted people, and I shall straighten myself up and feel that I am a free man among free men. Ah Sung He End of Section 1 This is Section 2 of Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again by Mark Twain Section 2 Letters 3 and 4 Letter 3 San Francisco, 18 blank. Dear Ching Fu, I stepped ashore jubilant. I wanted to dance, shout, sing, worship the generous land of the free and home of the brave. But as I walked from the gangplank, a man in a gray uniform policeman, kicked me violently behind and told me to look out, so my employer translated it. As I turned, another officer of the same kind struck me with a short club and also instructed me to look out. I was about to take hold of my end of the pole, which had mine and Hong Wo's basket and things suspended from it, when a third officer hit me with his club to signify that I was to drop it and then kicked me to signify that he was satisfied with my promptness. Another person came now, and searched all through our basket and bundles, emptying everything out on the dirty wharf. Then this person and another searched us all over. They found a little package of opium sewed into the artificial part of Hong Wo's queue, and they took that, and also they made him prisoner, and handed him over to an officer, who marched him away. They took his luggage, too, because of his crime, and as our luggage was so mixed together that they could not tell mine from his, they took it all. When I offered to help divide it, they kicked me and desired me to look out. Having now no baggage and no companion, I told my employer that if he was willing, I would walk about a little and see the city and the people until he needed me. I did not like to seem disappointed with my reception in the good land of refuge for the oppressed, and so I looked and spoke as cheerily as I could. But he said, wait a minute, I must be vaccinated to prevent my taking the smallpox. I smiled and said I had already had the smallpox, as he could see by the marks, so I need not wait to be vaccinated, as he called it, but he said it was the law, and I must be vaccinated anyhow. The doctor would never let me pass, for the law obliged him to vaccinate all Chinamen and charge them ten dollars apiece for it, and I might be sure that no doctor who would be the servant of that law would let a fee slip through his fingers to accommodate any absurd fool who had seen fit to have the disease in some other country. 
and presently the doctor came and did his work and took my last penny. My ten dollars, which were the hard savings of nearly a year and a half labor and privation. Ah, if the lawmakers had only known there were plenty of doctors in the city glad of a chance to vaccinate people for a dollar or two, they would never have put the price up so high against a poor friendless Irish or Italian or Chinese pauper fleeing to the good land to escape hunger and hard times. Ah Sung He. Letter 4. San Francisco, 18, blank. Dear Ching Fu, I have been here about a month now, and am learning a little of the language every day. My employer was disappointed in the matter of hiring us out to service to the plantations in the far eastern portion of this continent. His enterprise was a failure, and so he set us all free, merely taking measures to secure to himself the repayment of the passage money which he paid for us. We are to make this good to him out of the first monies we earn here. He says it is sixty dollars apiece. We were thus set free about two weeks after we reached here. We had been massed together in some small houses up to that time, waiting. I walked forth to seek my fortune. I was to begin life a stranger in a strange land, without a friend or a penny, or any clothes but those I had on my back. I had not any advantage on my side in the world, not one, except good health and the lack of any necessity to waste any time or anxiety on the watching of my baggage. No, I forget. I reflected that I had one prodigious advantage over paupers in other lands. I was in America. I was in the heaven-provided refuge of the oppressed and the forsaken. Just as that comforting thought passed through my mind, some young men set a fierce dog on me. I tried to defend myself, but could do nothing. I retreated to the recess of a closed doorway, and there the dog had me at his mercy, flying at my throat and face or any part of my body that presented itself. I shrieked for help, but the young men only jeered and laughed. Two men in gray uniforms—policemen is their official title—looked on for a minute, and then walked leisurely away. But a man stopped them and brought them back and told them it was a shame to leave me in such distress. Then the two policemen beat off the dog with small clubs, and a comfort it was to be rid of him, though I was just rags and blood from head to foot. The man who brought the policemen asked the young men why they abused me in that way, and they said they didn't want any of his meddling, and they said to him, this ching devil comes to Ameriky to take the bread out of decent, intelligent white men's mouths, and where they try to defend their rights, there's a dial of fuss made about it. They began to threaten my benefactor, and as he saw no friendliness in the faces that had gathered meanwhile, he went on his way. He got many a curse when he was gone. The policeman now told me I was under arrest and must go with them. I asked one of them what wrong I had done to any one that I should be arrested and he only struck me with his club and ordered me to hold my yap. With a jeering crowd of street boys and loafers at my heels, I was taken up an alley and into a stone-paved dungeon, which had large cells all down one side of it, with iron gates to them. I stood up by a desk while a man behind it wrote down certain things about me on a slate. One of my captors said, "'Enter a charge against this Chinaman of being disorderly and disturbing the peace.' I attempted to say a word, but he said, "'Silence! Now ye'd better go slow, my good fellow. This is two or three times you've tried to get off some of your damned insolence. Lip won't do here. 
you've got to simmer down, and if you don't take to it paceable, we'll see if we can't make you. Fat's your name? Ah Sung Hee. Alias what? I said I did not understand, and he said what he wanted was my true name, for he guessed I picked up this one since I stole my last chickens. They all laughed loudly at that. Then they searched me. They found nothing, of course. They seemed very angry, and asked who I supposed would go my bail or pay my fine. When they explained these things to me, I said I had done nobody any harm, and why should I need to have bail or pay a fine? Both of them kicked me and warned me that I would find it to my advantage to try and be as civil as convenient. I protested that I had not meant anything disrespectful. Then one of them took me to one side and said, "'Now look here, Johnny. It's no use you playing softly with us. We main business, you know, and the sooner you put us on the scent of a five, the easier you'll save yourself from a dale of trouble. You can't get out of this for any less. Who's your friends?' I told him I had not a single friend in all the land of America, and that I was far from home and help, and very poor, and I begged him to let me go. He gathered the slack of my blouse collar in his grip, and jerked and shoved and hauled at me across the dungeon, and then, unlocking an iron cell-gate, thrust me in with a kick, and said, "'Rot there, ye fern spawn, till ye learn that there's no room in America for the likes of ye or your nation.' Ah Sung he. End of section two. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This is section three of Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again by Mark Twain. Section three, letter five. Letter five, San Francisco, 18 blank. Dear Ching Fu, you will remember that I had just been thrust violently into a cell in the city prison when I wrote last. I stumbled and fell on someone. I got a blow and a curse, and on top of these a kick or two and a shove. In a second or two it was plain that I was in a nest of prisoners and being passed around. For the instant I was knocked out of the way of one, I fell on the head or heels of another and was promptly ejected, only to land on a third prisoner and get a new contribution of kicks and curses, and a new destination. I brought up, at last, in an unoccupied corner, very much battered and bruised and sore, but glad enough to be let alone for a little while. I was on the flagstones, for there was no furniture in the den except a long, broad board, or combination of boards, like a barn door, and this bed was accommodating five or six persons, and that was its full capacity." They lay stretched side by side, snoring, when not fighting. One end of the board was four inches higher than the other, and so the slant answered for a pillow. There were no blankets, and the night was a little chilly. The nights are always a little chilly in San Francisco, though never severely cold. The board was a deal more comfortable than the stones, and occasionally some flagstone plebeian like me would try to creep to a place on it, 
and then the aristocrats would hammer him good and make him think a flag pavement was a nice enough place after all. I lay quiet in my corner, stroking my bruises, and listening to the revelations the prisoners made to each other, and to me, for some that were near me talked to me a good deal. I had long had an idea that Americans, being free, had no need of prisons, which are a contrivance of despots, for keeping restless patriots out of mischief. So I was considerably surprised to find out my mistake. Ours was a big general cell, it seemed, for the temporary accommodation of all comers whose crimes were trifling. Among us there were two Americans, two greasers, Mexicans, a Frenchman, a German, four Irishmen, a Chilean, and in the next cell only separated from us by a grating, two women, all drunk and all more or less noisy. And as night fell and advanced they grew more and more discontented and disorderly occasionally shaking the prison bars and glaring through them at the slowly pacing officer, and cursing him with all their hearts. The two women were nearly middle-aged, and they had only had enough liquor to stimulate instead of stupefy them. Consequently, they would fondle and kiss each other for some minutes, and then fall to fighting and keep it up till they were just two grotesque tangles of rags and blood and tumbled hair. Then they would rest a while and pant and swear. While they were affectionate, they always spoke of each other as ladies. But while they were fighting, strumpet was the mildest name they could think of, and they could only make that do by tacking some sounding profanity to it. In their last fight, which was toward midnight, one of them bit off the other's finger, and then the officer interfered and put the greaser into the dark cell to answer for it, because the woman that did it laid it on him, and the other woman did not deny it, because, as she said afterward, she wanted another crack at the hussy when her finger quit hurting, and so she did not want her removed. By this time those two women had mutilated each other's clothes to that extent that there was not sufficient left to cover their nakedness. I found that one of these creatures had spent nine years in the county jail, and that the other one had spent about four or five years in the same place. They had done it from choice— as soon as they were discharged from captivity, they would go straight and get drunk, and then steal some trifling thing while an officer was observing them. That would entitle them to another two months in jail, and there they would occupy clean, airy apartments and have good food in plenty, and being at no expense at all, they could make shirts for the clothiers at half a dollar apiece, and thus keep themselves in smoking tobacco and such other luxuries as they wanted. When the two months were up, they would go just as straight as they could walk to Mother Leonard's and get drunk, and from there to Kearney Street and steal something, and thence to the city prison, and next day back to the old quarters in the county jail again. One of them had really kept this up for nine years, and the other four or five, and both said they meant to end their days in that prison. Note, the former of the two did. Ed Mem. Finally, both these creatures fell upon me while I was dozing with my head against their grating, and battered me considerably, because they discovered that I was a Chinaman, and they said I was a bloody interlopin' loafer come from a, the devil's own country to take the bread out of decent people's mouths, and put down the wages for work when it was all a Christian could do to keep body and soul together as it was. Loafer means one who will not work. Ah Sung Hee. 
End of section 3. Section 4 of Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again by Mark Twain. Section 4. Letters 6 and 7. Letter 6. San Francisco, 18 blank. Dear Ching Fu, to continue, the two women became reconciled to each other again through the common bond of interest and sympathy created between them by pounding me in partnership, and when they had finished me they fell to embracing each other again and swearing more eternal affection like that which had subsisted between them all the evening, barring occasional interruptions. They agreed to swear the finger-biting on the greaser in open court and get him sent to the penitentiary for the crime of mayhem. Another of our company was a boy of fourteen who had been watched for some time by officers and teachers, and repeatedly detected in enticing young girls from the public schools to the lodgings of gentlemen downtown. He had been furnished with lures in the form of pictures and books of a peculiar kind, and these he had distributed among his clients. There were likenesses of fifteen of these young girls on exhibition, only to prominent citizens and persons in authority, it was said, though most people came to get a sight, at the police headquarters, but no punishment at all was to be inflicted on the poor little misses. The boy was afterwards sent into captivity at the House of Correction for some months, and there was a strong disposition to punish the gentlemen who had employed the boy to entice the girls, but as that could not be done without making public the names of those gentlemen, and thus injuring them socially, the idea was finally given up. There was also in our cell that night a photographer, a kind of artist who makes likenesses of people with a machine, who had been for some time patching the pictured heads of well-known and respectable young ladies to the nude pictured bodies of another class of women. Then, from this patched creation, he would make photographs and sell them privately at high prices to rowdies and blackguards, averring that these, the best young ladies of the city, had hired him to take their likenesses in that unclad condition. What a lecture the police judge read that photographer when he was convicted! He told him his crime was little less than an outrage. He abused that photographer till he almost made him sink through the floor and then he fined him a hundred dollars, and he told him he might consider himself lucky that he didn't fine him a hundred and twenty-five dollars. They are awfully severe on crime here. About two or two and a half hours after midnight of that first experience of mine in the city prison, such of us as were dozing were awakened by a noise of beating and dragging and groaning, and in a little while a man was pushed into our den with a there, damn you, soak there a spell. And then the gate was closed, and the officers went away again. The man who was thrust among us fell limp and helpless by the grating, but as nobody could reach him with a kick without the trouble of hitching along toward him or getting fairly up to deliver it, our people only grumbled at him and cursed him and called him insulting names, for misery and hardship do not make their victims gentle or charitable toward each other. But as he neither tried humbly to conciliate our people, nor swore back at them, his unnatural conduct created surprise, and several of the party crawled to him where he lay in the dim light that came through the grating, and examined into his case. 
His head was very bloody, and his wits were gone. After about an hour he sat up and stared around, then his eyes grew more natural, and he began to tell how that he was going along with a bag on his shoulder, and a brace of policemen ordered him to stop, which he did not do, was chased and caught, beaten ferociously about the head on the way to the prison and after arrival there, and finally thrown into our den like a dog. And in a few seconds he sank down again and grew flighty of speech. One of our people was at last penetrated with something vaguely akin to compassion, maybe, for he looked out through the gratings at the guardian officer pacing to and fro, and said, "'Hey, Mickey, uh, this shrimp's going to die.' "'Stop your noise!' was all the answer he got. But presently our man tried it again. He drew himself to the gratings, grasping them with his hands, and looking out through them, sat waiting till the officer was passing once more, and then said, "'Sweetness, you'd better mind your eye now, because you beats him have killed this cuss. You've busted his head, and he'll pass in his checks before sun-up. You better go for a doctor now. You bet you had.' The officer delivered a sudden rap on our man's knuckles with a club that sent him scampering and howling among the sleeping forms on the flagstones, and an answering burst of laughter came from the half-dozen policemen idling about the railed desk in the middle of the dungeon. But there was a putting of heads together out there presently, and a conversing in low voices, which seemed to show that our man's talk had made an impression, and presently an officer went away in a hurry and shortly came back with a person who entered our cell and felt the bruised man's pulse, and through the glare of a lantern on his drawn face, striped with blood, and his glassy eyes, fixed and vacant. The doctor examined the man's broken head also, and presently said, "'If you'd called me an hour ago, I might have saved this man. Maybe too late now.' Then he walked out into the dungeon, and the officers surrounded him, and they kept up a low and earnest buzzing of conversation for fifteen minutes, I should think, and then the doctor took his departure from the prison. Several of the officers now came in and worked a little with the wounded man, but toward daylight he died. It was the longest, longest night, and when the daylight came, filtering reluctantly into the dungeon at last, it was the grayest dreariest, saddest daylight. And yet, when an officer by and by turned off the sickly yellow gas-flame, and immediately the gray of dawn became fresh and white, there was a lifting of my spirits that acknowledged and believed that the night was gone, and straightway I fell to stretching my sore limbs, and looking about me with a grateful sense of relief and a returning interest in life. About me lay the evidences that what seemed now a feverish dream and a nightmare was the memory of a reality instead. For on the boards lay four frowsy, ragged, bearded vagabonds snoring, one turned end for end and resting an unclean foot in a ruined stocking on the hairy breast of a neighbor. The young boy was uneasy and lay moaning in his sleep. Other forms lay half-revealed and half-concealed about the floor. In the furthest corner the gray light fell upon a sheet, whose elevations and depressions indicated the places of the dead man's face and feet and folded hands. And through the dividing bars one could discern the almost nude forms of the two exiles from the county jail, twined together in a drunken embrace and sodden with sleep. By and by all the animals in all the cages awoke, and stretched themselves, and exchanged a few cuffs and curses, and then began to clamor for breakfast. 
Breakfast was brought in at last, bread and beefsteak on tin plates, and black coffee in tin cups, and no grabbing allowed. And after several dreary hours of waiting after this, we were all marched out into the dungeon, and joined there by all manner of vagrants and vagabonds of all shades and colors and nationalities from the other cells and cages of the place. And pretty soon our whole menagerie was marched upstairs and locked fast behind a high railing in a dirty room with a dirty audience in it. And this audience stared at us, and at a man seated on high behind what they call a pulpit in this country, and at some clerks and other officials seated below him, and waited. This was the police court. The court opened. Pretty soon I was compelled to notice that a culprit's nationality made for or against him in this court. Overwhelming proofs were necessary to convict an Irishman of crime, and even then his punishment amounted to little. Frenchmen, Spaniards, and Italians had strict and unprejudiced justice meted out to them, in exact accordance with the evidence. Negroes were promptly punished, when there was the slightest preponderance of testimony against them. But Chinamen were punished, always, apparently. Now this gave me some uneasiness, I confess. I knew that this state of things must of necessity be accidental, because in this country all men were free and equal, and one person could not take to himself an advantage not accorded to all other individuals. I knew that, and yet, in spite of it, I was uneasy. And I grew still more uneasy when I found that any succored and befriended refugee from Ireland or elsewhere could stand up before that judge and swear away the life or liberty or character of a refugee from China, but that by the law of the land the Chinaman could not testify against the Irishman. I was really and truly uneasy, but still my faith in the universal liberty that America accords and defends, and my deep veneration for the land that offered all distressed outcasts a home and protection, was strong within me, and I said to myself that it would all come out right yet. Ah Sung Hee Letter 7. San Francisco, 18 blank. Dear Ching Fu, I was glad enough when my case came up. An hour's experience had made me as tired of the police court as of the dungeon. I was not uneasy about the result of the trial, but on the contrary felt that as soon as the large auditory of Americans present should hear how that the rowdies had set the dogs on me when I was going peacefully along the street, and how, when I was all torn and bleeding, the officers arrested me and put me in jail and let the rowdies go free. The gallant hatred of oppression which is part of the very flesh and blood of every American would be stirred to its utmost, and I should be instantly set at liberty. In truth I began to fear for the other side. There in full view stood the ruffians who had misused me, and I began to fear that in the first burst of generous anger occasioned by the revealment of what they had done, they might be harshly handled, and possibly even banished the country as having dishonored her and being no longer worthy to remain upon her sacred soil. The official interpreter of the court asked my name, and then spoke it aloud so that all could hear. Supposing that all was now ready, I cleared my throat and began in Chinese, because of my imperfect English. Hear, O high and mighty Mandarin, and believe. As I went about my peaceful business in the street, behold, certain men set a dog on me, and— Silence! It was the judge that spoke. 
The interpreter whispered to me that I must keep perfectly still. He said that no statement would be received from me. I must only talk through my lawyer. I had no lawyer. In the early morning a police-court lawyer, termed in the higher circles of society a shyster, had come into our den in the prison and offered his services to me, but I had been obliged to go without them, because I could not pay in advance or give security. I told the interpreter how the matter stood. He said I must take my chances on the witnesses then. I glanced around, and my failing confidence revived. "'Call those four Chinamen yonder,' I said. "'They saw it all. I remember their faces perfectly. They will prove that the white men set the dog on me when I was not harming them. That won't work,' said he. "'In this country white men can testify against Chinamen all they want to, but Chinamen ain't allowed to testify against white men.' What a chill went through me! And then I felt the indignant blood rise to my cheek at this libel upon the home of the oppressed, where all men are free and equal, perfectly equal, perfectly free and perfectly equal. I despised this Chinese-speaking Spaniard for his mean slander of the land that was sheltering and feeding him. I sorely wanted to sear his eyes with that sentence from the great and good American Declaration of Independence, which we have copied in letters of gold in China, and keep hung up over our family altars and in our temples. I mean the one about all men being created free and equal. But, woe is me, Ching Fu, the man was right. He was right, after all. There were my witnesses, but I could not use them. But now came a new hope. I saw my white friend come in, and I felt that he had come there purposely to help me. I may almost say I knew it. So I grew easier. He passed near enough to me to say under his breath, Don't be afraid. And then I had no more fear. But presently the rowdies recognized him and began to scowl at him in no friendly way and to make threatening signs at him. The two officers that arrested me fixed their eyes steadily on his. He bore it well, but gave in presently and dropped his eyes. They still gazed at his eyebrows, and every time he raised his eyes he encountered their winkless stare, until after a minute or two he ceased to lift his head at all. The judge had been giving some instructions privately to someone for a little while, but now he was ready to resume business. Then the trial, so unspeakably important to me, and freighted with such prodigious consequence to my wife and children, began, progressed, ended, was recorded in the books— noted down by the newspaper reporters, and forgotten by everybody but me, all in the space of two minutes. Ah Sung Hee, Chinaman, Officers O'Flanagan and O'Flaherty, Witnesses. Come forward, Officer O'Flanagan. Officer. He was making a disturbance in Kearney Street. Judge. Any witnesses on the other side? No response. The white friend raised his eyes, encountered Officer O'Flaherty's, blushed a little, got up and left the courtroom, avoiding all glances and not taking his own from the floor. Judge. Give him five dollars or ten days. In my desolation there was a glad surprise in the words, but it passed away when I found that he only meant that I was to be fined five dollars, or imprisoned ten days longer in default of it. There were twelve or fifteen Chinamen in our crowd of prisoners, charged with all manner of little thefts and misdemeanors, and their cases were quickly disposed of as a general thing. When the charge came from a policeman or other white man, he made his statement, and that was the end of it, 
unless the Chinaman's lawyer could find some white person to testify in his client's behalf, for neither the accused Chinaman nor his countrymen being allowed to say anything, the statement of the officers or other white person was amply sufficient to convict. So, as I said, the Chinaman's cases were quickly disposed of, and fines and imprisonment promptly distributed among them. In one or two of the cases the charges against Chinamen were brought by Chinamen themselves, and in those cases Chinamen testified against Chinamen, through the interpreter. But the fixed rule of the court being that the preponderance of testimony in such cases should determine the prisoner's guilt or innocence, and there being nothing very binding about an oath administered to the lower orders of our people without the ancient solemnity of cutting off a chicken's head and burning some yellow paper at the same time, the interested parties naturally drum up a cloud of witnesses who are cheerfully willing to give evidence without ever knowing anything about the matter in hand. The judge has a custom of rattling through with as much of this testimony as his patience will stand, and then shutting off the rest and striking an average. By noon all the business of the court was finished, and then several of us who had not fared well were remanded to prison. The judge went home, the lawyers and officers and spectators departed their several ways, and left the uncomely courtroom to silence, solitude, and Stiggers, the newspaper reporter, which later would now write up his items, said an ancient Chinaman to me, in the which he would praise all the policemen indiscriminately, and abuse the Chinamen and dead people. Ah Sung He. End of section 4 and end of Goldsmith's Friend Abroad Again by Mark Twain.